little audio clue there to the theme of this edition of Things Unseen. Yes, we're travelling through time and space to consider sci-fi and spirituality. So often, sci-fi deals with the same big questions that religion does. What happens when we die? Are we alone in the universe? Is there some bigger truth beyond our current understanding of that universe? And what makes us human? It's a window into our dreams, and we're going to open that window. Just hope that we've landed on a planet with a breathable atmosphere. After you, Frebisher. Best flipper forward. I'm Natalie Haynes. I'm a writer, broadcaster and huge sci-fi fan. And with me is Dr Beth Singler, research associate with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion, and Robert Shearman, a writer whose work has often focused on the fantastical and he is the man who brought Daleks into the 21st century. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Hello. Hello. I wondered if we could kick off with an example of sci-fi directly addressing the idea of belief. Rob, this is one of yours from a little while back now, The Holy Mm. Terror. Could you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, it's an audio comedy drama really back in the time when Doctor Who was off the air a number of us struggling writer stroke fans were trying to produce ways of keeping the show alive and it's a story which is trying to address the idea that if you had a community which believed in the whole idea of an immortal god as a monarch and the monarch keeps dying how you actually find that that fits into your belief system Yeah, I love this. When I um, read about it, it made me think of the Romans, of course. Yeah. Where the the Roman emperor becomes a god on his death, but isn't usually considered a god while he's alive, apart from in some bits of the eastern provinces. It's it's, it's massively influenced and cribbed off I Claudius, I did wonder if it might be. I'm I'm a massive I Claudius fan. I did wonder. To be honest, it made me think of um, Vespasian's Last Words, Vi Puto Deus Fio. Uh-oh, I think I'm turning into a god. Anyway, I thought we might listen to a little bit of it before I randomly start speaking Latin at everyone, which doesn't help. You have been brought here to answer one simple question. Well, far away. Whom do you worship, Eugene Tacitus? Well, I'd say the living god Emperor Pepin the Sixth. Doesn't everyone? Easy, men. Don't be shocked by the blasphemy. Oh, I take it that's the wrong answer then. The living god Emperor Pepin the Sixth is dead. Oh, whoops. He fell asleep in his bath and drowned. Not a very dignified way to go. The new living god is now Emperor Pepin the Seventh, and all those who worship Pepin the Sixth commit heresy and must be executed forthwith. Oh dear. Forthwith, you say? According to the holy rituals, the condemned will have one eye gouged out, the other left intact to watch the flames rise as he is burned at the stake. Not a terribly dignified way to go, either. You are to be taken from this place to a cell awaiting execution. You will be allowed no contact with your family, and your remains will not be placed in holy ground, and your name will be reviled forevermore and held as a byword for apostasy unless you are prepared to recant immediately and pledge allegiance to the living god, Pepin the Seventh. Oh, well, I think I'll recant then. Is that your final decision, Eugene Tacitus? Absolutely. Oh, well, that's fine then. Swords back, then. We've got another one who wants to recant. A uh, clip from the Big Finish production, The Holy Terror, written by our guest, Robert Shearman. Rob, what were you looking to explore there? I have long wrestled with religion because, I, I mean, I've been quite religious in my life. I've been not religious. And I think that I was at that point just trying to get to grips with the fact that I'd been quite religious recently and was always sort of a bit baffled by the way in which it always becomes a sort of almost extreme certainty all the time. I think I was really at that point just sort of trying to explore the way in which as soon as everyone actually starts acting with degrees of great certainty about religious belief, this has to be a fundamental truth and that cannot be argued with, that's when I find myself losing interest. It's the dialogue around religion is very much Mm. only the very, very certain 
ever seem to be giving their opinion on religion, whereas actually surely most of us occupy a territory which is much more, uh, to quote Scooby-Doo. People I see on Facebook, for example, who are putting up atheist memes all the time, and what they're really usually reacting against is what they see as people's dogmatism. And yet they're being dogmatic back. And I find myself, because I'm, I'm easily swayed on Facebook by anything I see, but, <laughs> but when I see something actually which seems to be very dogmatically attacking Christians, I suddenly find myself feeling, well, I, I, th- I think that that's very unfair and I think Christians have a lot of very good things to say. And then I see another one which is a Christian thing attacking atheism and I get very, very defensive of, of, of atheists. And so I think I occupy a middle ground where... Nobody really likes me because I'm always on the side of the, like sort of, of the mediocre. <laughs> Beth Singler, do you think the same thing? Do you feel like sci-fi is a journey? I mean, it's it's not an accident that, for example, Star Trek is about boldly going. It's not about getting somewhere and colonising yeah. it. It's about moving and searching for something. And there is a religious subtext there, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I completely agree on the messiness of human thought when it comes to religion. I mean, as an anthropologist, I look at similar sorts of subjects as writers do. In fact, you know, anthropologists do ethnography that's writing about humans. We'll let you be in the writer's gang. It's OK. Yeah. You can be please, in our gang. Don't worry. No, that's fine. You're in. You're in. much more intelligent as well. You've come through the turnstiles. Don't you worry. But it's it's a basically the same principle of thinking about what humans think about and kind of shaping some form of narrative that brings that together. And obviously science fiction does that more explicitly and the, the journey narrative, I think, is very a very useful way to think about people's problems in the sense that you know, with Star Trek, they're going somewhere. That's a very good point to make. But they don't necessarily get there, even if sometimes the captain can seem quite a determined figure. He's also a capricious figure in the various incarnations of different captains that being there mixes things up in another way, spins the story off in another direction, and we get more potentials for sort of playing out different thought experiments in science fiction and thinking what if, looking up to the stars in Star Trek or looking around us in other forms of science fiction and thinking what if this situation was this different in this particular way. Yes, I'm also a huge geek, so... Hooray! (laughs) Pleased to be here. You're among friends. (laughs) But rather than addressing religion directly, more often sci-fi is looking at the same big questions that Faith is trying to explore, isn't it? So, for example, sci-fi seems to be particularly concerned with our uniqueness or lack of it. Beth, I know you've looked into examples of this, like Blade Runner, for yeah, instance. So, so my research primarily is considering questions of human identity in relation to nearly human machines. That's a very debatable term, nearly human machines. But broadly, what I'm talking about is artificial intelligence and robots and thinking about how we place ourselves in relation to potential new intelligences. And really, what I'm doing is actually asking the same sorts of questions we've asked every single time we've encountered an intelligence before and placed ourselves as a kind of collective we in relation to it, either to the detrimental effect to that intelligence, which we've seen in history again and again, or a reconsidering of where we situate ourselves as humans and, and think of ourselves as being within a web of a wider cosmology of beings or potential beings. So when it comes to science fiction, that that's the same sorts of accounts again, even if it's aliens or robots or so forth. You know, we're sort of thinking about who we are, why we're here, where we're going, what is the human being for, and by extenuation, what robots are for or what aliens are for as well. And that's where you get stories about robot rebellions because yes. we have to think through why we've got them and what they're going to do if they have intelligence. It's such a great sci-fi trope, isn't it? Because mm. it makes us empathise with something we've explicitly decreed as non-human. It yes. makes us think, what's it like being the robot? Well, so it's very much a sort of reaction to an assumption of mind in something else. Seeing 
a robot with a mind leads us to the natural conclusion that we have minds, we don't want to be slaves, therefore robots don't want to be slaves either. So they're naturally going to rise up and there'll be the robo-apocalypse or the Terminator scenario. And, you know, we see this again and again in the media and the press stories about artificial intelligence and robots as well. Rob, why is it, do you think, that science fiction seems to be a handy place to explore life's big questions? I think because the nature of science fiction is you can write without embarrassment things which are those big epic themes in a way that most modern culture doesn't respect in the same way. I, I, I mean, I think that we always aspire, really, to try and tell big stories which, which ask important questions. And you can do so, I think, in, the, in, in, in that sort of space world. And if, you, if, you have, if you have the force in Star Wars, it's so yes. obviously a big religious metaphor. Yes. But it doesn't make anybody feel, as, as, as you're watching it, that this is some sort of Christian parable being taught to you. It becomes a sort of a, a, big, a big heroic adventure thing. Yeah. And the nature of heroism, anyway, I think, culturally, has become something rather awkward. But it isn't in science fiction particularly still. So that idea of, of, of people having very, very big agendas and saving worlds and things, which is, let's face it, really what the whole God thing is. I mean, it's an interesting becomes, expectation of the genre, yeah. isn't it? Because crime nerds are always seen as being sort of neat freaks, basically. Yeah. What they would like is order to be imposed on chaos. Yes. A murder happens and then we would like order to be imposed. With science fiction fans, yeah. what they would like is a huge allegorical adventure. Yeah. And that underpins so much sci-fi that presumably it means when you start writing, the kind of the sky's the limit. I think that the way in which we have secularised culture anyway, it only sort of leaves science fiction to do it. And yet it's often written by very, very secular people. When we were doing Doctor Who, my showrunner, Russell T Davis, is a very pronounced atheist. He'd mm-hmm. written Second Coming, mm-hmm. which was about uh, Christopher Eccleston returning... As Jesus it's because he looks so lovely when he runs in a oh, green was, jumper. Yeah, I don't know what you want me to well. say. If there's going to be a messiah, I hope he wears a green jumper and runs like Chris Freckleston. What was, what was fun about it was that it was the way in which, although Russell is an atheist, he couldn't resist always being drawn to those messiah-like stories in Doctor Who yes. as well because I think it irked him. And I think that once you cast off those sort of trappings of, of sort of naturalistic fiction and the whole floodgates are opened, mm. what you're left staring at is those questions about... Well, is there something bigger than us? And are there aliens? And all those things. I mean, aliens, I think, as Beth was saying, do suggest the idea of a modern-day take on religion anyway. It's the idea of of our position in the universe. Yes, I mean, that's another Star Trek trope, isn't it? That depending on where you are in the advancement of space travel, then the people who can travel through space, the aliens, sometimes that's humans, but Mm. the aliens who come to your planet are perceived as gods Mm. quite frequently. Mm. Beth... It is a place to explore these what-if questions, isn't it? What if there were aliens? What if the robots rose up? Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I suppose the secular version of science fiction is the thought experiment, which obviously has a much grander history in philosophy and science as a space where we can work things out, kind of speculate wildly. And then science fiction adds like kind of an aesthetic appeal on top of the thought experiment that isn't really there. So you get the cultures and the illustrations of mentally of what you're, you're examining, the cultures that you're encountering, the, the beautiful languages or the harsh languages of the Star Trek cultures that you encounter, the very different... You mean Klingon, don't you? I do. You mean all those yeah. cases? Well, yeah. I've never tried to learn. I, I haven't but, ever tried to learn. Klingon. But it's, it's it's a way of sort of extrapolating from 
specific examples from our own cultures and kind of amplifying them as well. So obviously you get like the Ferengi in Star Trek being kind of the capitalist system writ large, Klingons as the aggressive noble houses. You get a chance to kind of take aspects of the depth of human experience and kind of play with them in specific uh, And they take gods with them as well. I mean, I think the Klingons have quite a Viking sensibility, don't they? Mm. That very warrior culture. They drink ale, yeah. and their gods mm. are quite mm. Norse. Yeah, they're quite Norse gods. Yeah. So they've they've brought the the gods with the society that they've brought from Earth into and, their world. And obviously, an element of that from the sort of golden age of science fiction was this secularity that some of the science fiction writers were using these mediums as a way of parodying religion to say we would naturally over time become more rational, mm. and therefore, in the far future of Star Trek or wherever, you would be able to look back at other civilizations like the Klingons, like the Ferengi. The Ferengi basically worship gold. That's their religion. The Klingons have this kind of military style, but they have deities. That this is somehow something irrational that we would need to transcend. You don't see that as often now, but there's still instances. There was a storyline in The Orville, which is a kind of science fiction comedy Star Trek version of the future where they had a character who through accident basically became a god on a planet but the planet kept disappearing into another dimension reappearing many hundreds of years later in their time but only minutes later in ours so time went really fast there so you got to see the progress from this kind of like medieval period of witch hunts based upon her as the god right. up to a point where they went it's, it's actually okay we've evolved past this and we're all serious rational beings now and it's okay we knew you're a space traveller and everything's okay it's all been sorted so that's sort of narrative of our natural progress past religion is or has been in science fiction is you know it's, it's something that we kind of have to escape as we become more serious and grown up yeah i mean doctor who you know back in the classic days as well mm. it became actually one of those annoying tropes in the stories where they yeah. landed on a planet and there was anybody who believed in religion yeah. usually a tribe yes and they were and they were stupid i mean they were they were worshiping a space glove, yeah. and, and the story was all about basically pointing out to yeah. them that religion was a meaningless thing mm. and there was a scientific rationale. That's kind of changed a bit. I think mm. people feel a bit awkward about now asserting yeah. that. It feels a bit like cultural appropriation as well in some ways. It's like how Star Trek has changed. I mean, Star Trek used to be, you know, if we were going out into the universe, mm. we were the best examples of that universe and we would meet other species and we would... We wouldn't try and learn from them. We would mm. almost impose American values on them. Mm. And that's become a little bit icky, yeah. I think, as time I, has I also on, think so. contemporary science fiction has a wider array of voices involved in it. So mm. you get people who've come from many different cultural contexts, whereas I think in the kind of high times of the golden age of science fiction with your Clarks and your Asimovs, they all tended to have very similar sorts of backgrounds and similar sorts of voices and similar sorts of responses to religion. And that kind of, you're right, absolutely, yeah. kind of cultural appropriation of these are the indigenous cultures that we want to slightly mock because they're backwards. And yeah. Yeah, anthropology went through a similar stage of kind of examining the other and not actually examining ourselves as well. And I think perhaps people have been exploring the afterlife in science fiction and actually in reality through tech a great deal more recently. I wondered if you might talk about that a little. Yeah, so something that I look at is the idea of a transhumanist future where people are speculating on using technology to either extend lifetimes to immortality potentially, or to use technology to upload minds, copy them, so that you could potentially live forever on a new format. So, you know, flesh being the previous format, we can move on to silicon. These ideas about how we might, through technology, potentially 
solve the pernicious problem of death. What's your favourite example of that? I know you're a Black Mirror fan. Well, yes, Black Mirror obviously hits all the high notes of science fiction lately. Uh, so uh, there's a couple of accounts, San Junipero, which presents a kind of simulated version of a nightclub where you can go either if you're dead or if you want to explore this space. Uh, Be Right Back presents the option of resurrecting people who've left us already and using a combination of their emails, social media and various other forms of data that they produced during their lifetime to basically replicate their personalities. And this this is science fiction to a certain degree because some people are already experimenting with these sort of forms of machine learning systems based on people's personal corpus of data over their lifetime. So there are websites where you can go to and opt in to having yourself sort of digitally resurrected. It is a really interesting question though, isn't it? How we try and find our way through how we're going to live if we're never going to die. I just watched a fantastic episode of Altered Carbon, which I've I only got a few episodes through, so no spoilers. Yeah. But there, there's the opportunity to sort of spin people back up who've died. They're encased in an electronic form. You can bring them back and someone brings back their grandmother for the Day of the Dead. So it's a Spanish Mexican family. And at the end of the episode, she says, you know, this will be the last time. This was very nice and mm-hmm. I enjoyed it and I wanted to be with the grandchildren. This was lovely but don't do it again. It's time mm-hmm. for the world to move on without me. So we've looked at the idea of individual human afterlife but what about the future of humanity as a whole I know you've been looking at the singularity Beth yes with a name like Beth Singler I had to you did really really. I had to that's nominative determinism in action right there absolutely I guess that's the least you could do yeah so the technological singularity is an idea about this acceleration of processing power that artificial intelligence people extrapolating from where we are now to where we might be in the future and it's either well it's described in many different ways so ironically the singularity is not a singular idea either um, that um, Either this intelligence explosion will be like an event which transforms the universe in various different ways. It could be considered as a being with intention and agency and autonomy. It might also be something that we are kind of collectively kind of consumed by in our uploading of our minds in the future, that we actually form the singularity through what we summarise all the human minds together. So there's quite a few different versions of it. But broadly, it's this idea that technology is going in a very specific direction that raises the ultimate level of human consciousness and we sort of spread out through the universe in this kind of mind fire that takes over everything and transforms our understanding of what being human is. Some people are a bit concerned about it. Some people link singularity and superintelligence ideas to kind of the waking of Skynet in Terminator films that if the singularity pops up, there's a film in 2017, terrible film, with John Cusack called Singularity, which specifically he creates an AI that kind of wakes up, destroys the majority of humanity and takes over. So there's that kind of dystopic view, the robopocalypse again, Or the utopian idea is that this is the natural evolution of mankind, that we merge with technology and the future will be better because of singularity being in charge. There's quite a, a vast array of responses from anxiety to hope. So can I take us back to religion, uh, since we've been talking about religious ideas and how science fiction looks at religion itself? Do you think that sci-fi is friendly to faith, Rob? I know we talked about secular sci-fi writers being drawn to it, but do you think it's a friendly place? I think it is, but often without knowing it. That's really Um, interesting. Why? Most science fiction writers I know, and I do a lot of science fiction conventions. You surprise me. Yeah. (laughs) Because you do Doctor Who and it never dies in a wonderful way. I'll be trading off that for the rest of my life. They would pronounce themselves as enemies to faith and they get very angry about the idea of close-minded, as they often would call it, religious people. And yet they're the ones who are writing about those aspirational things. And I think that by doing so, they often find themselves plugging into the optimism 
of the belief that there is some purpose, that there's something out there greater than just the sort of daily grunge. In fact, most science fiction films seem to me to be about that sort of whether it's the Matrix or whether it's going to be something like Star Wars, whether whether it's yep. Earth-based or not, it's about the revelation that there is more to life than you could possibly imagine. I mean, Arrival, is, its entire yeah. conceit yeah. is that, isn't it? Yeah. Its whole conceit is that a higher being can have a different mm. Precisely, type yeah. of knowledge. And, and, and Arrival doesn't even disguise it. The idea of alien as a metaphor for God becomes so obvious. Mm. And yet I'm sure the people involved in, in doing that weren't necessarily saying we're writing a pro-religious... Mm. But they are pro-faith. Yes. And I read an awful lot of work submitted as well for judging awards and when I do occasional bits of teaching for writing. And it's when you read things which are so relentlessly nihilistic and I never believe in them because the act of trying to create art in itself is a positive step. Yes. No, real nihilism is not bothering to write or paint at all. Yeah, so take al- that, Camus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so almost all of it actually is saying that there's a purpose to this and the idea of not quite understanding what that higher purpose might be but mm. trying in some way to reach for it is most obvious there with so much science fiction. Mm. I mean, and I know you've taken religion seriously enough to write about it quite extensively yeah. but you're also you're very happy to poke fun at it at the same time. You oh, take I, it seriously, but you're still frivolous. I wondered if you might read this a little. Yes, OK. If I ask nicely. This is the beginning of a short story called The Dark Space in the House, in the house, in the garden, at the centre of the world. Gotcha. It's a nice, you know, succinct title. <laughs> um, and this opening is a sort of monologue. Let's get something straight right from the outset, OK. I'm not angry with you. Mistakes were made on both sides. Mistakes. Ha! Arguably, I made just as many mistakes as you. Well, not quite as many, ha! But I accept I'm at least partly to blame. OK? No, really, OK? Come on, take those looks off your faces. I'm never going to be angry with you. I promise. I have wasted so much of my life on anger. There are entire eons full of it. I'm not even kidding. And it does nothing. It achieves nothing. Anger? It's a crock of shit. Isn't it a beautiful day? One of my best. The sun's warm, but not too warm. You can feel it stroking at your skin. It's all over your bare bodies and so comforting, but without it causing any of that irritating, sweaty stuff under the armpits. Though I do maintain that sweat's a useful thing. Look at the garden. Breathe it in. Tell me, be honest, how do you think it's coming on? See what I've done? I've been pruning the roses, training the clematis. I've been cutting back the privet hedges. Not bad, and just you wait until spring. The daffodils will be out by then. Lovely. No, seriously, relax. Relax right now. I'm serious. The apples were a mistake. Your mistake, my mistake, who's counting? My mistake was to set you a law without explaining why the law was being enforced. That's not a sound basis for any legal system. And your mistake, that was eating a fruit in which I'd chosen to house cancer. Well, I had to put it somewhere. You may have wondered about all those skin sores and why you've been coughing up blood and phlegm. Now you know. But don't worry, I'll fix it. See, you're cured. Popper looks after you. As for the apples, good source of vitamin A, low in calories. You just wait till you puree them up and top them with sugar. Oh, God, do I love a good apple crumble? I'm not even kidding. Keep the apple with my blessing. As for the cancers, well, I'll just stick them in something else. Don't worry, 
you'll never find them. And so, are we good, Cindy? And what is it, Steve? I think we're good. The fruit is all yours to eat. The air is all yours to breathe. The flowers are all yours to smell. The beasts of the world, yours to name and pet and hunt and skin and shag. We're good. But there is one last thing. Not a law. <laughs> I wouldn't call it a law. <laughs> no, OK, no, it's a law. Don't go into the forest. The forest that's at the heart of the garden, the garden at the centre of the world. The forest where the trees are so tall that they scratch the heavens, so dense that they drown out the light, where even the birds that settle on the branches come out stained with black. What? Why? Because I said so. What? Oh, yes, fair point. Because at the centre of the world there stands a house, and the house is old, and the house is haunted. OK. OK. I'll be off then. Night-night, sleep tight. Don't let the bedbugs bite. The voice of God, ladies and gentlemen, as <laughs> told by Rob yeah. Shearman. <laughs> what on earth made you think that you would write from a first-person I've written God's about God several... I mean, I wrote a stage play about 25 years ago when I was beginning as a theatre writer, mm-hmm. and it was in a repertory theatre in Exeter, the Northcott, and I used to get phone calls from these elderly Devonians saying, you're going to hell, matey. And, 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 and there was this strange phone call once which actually said to me, I mean, look, you are going to hell, there is no question, but you could save the well-being of all your actors if you had the show cancelled now. And I said, no, I, I want company. Yeah, no, that's and, fair enough. And God in that is a very amiable chap who goes and stays in a suburban house for a week in order to win one soul. And I've written God several different ways because I find the idea of God is so obviously comically unknowable but whenever you look at God as a sort of character, I think our modernist view of people is we like a bit of humility. Yes. And therefore, I think we all find, I do anyway, the idea of God, this guy who wants constant prayers and thanks. Yes. It's the reason we find, you know, the example of Donald Trump seeking his cabinet to give him a round of applause and tell him how good he is. We find that so crass. I find God saying... I'd like some regular prayers, please, to tell me how good I am. Why do you need it, God? I mean, yes. realistically... It is more adorable if he would like apple crumble. Yeah, that is just true, it. as you've correctly identified. <laughs> I, I, I think he would. Beth, you've and... noticed a development with sci-fi from its early days and how it's evolved. Well, yes, I mean, I think there's a wider diversity of narratives that are being heard in the science so fiction all, community sci-fi as well. authors have changed, yeah, is what you're saying, and that's to, why to sci-fi has changed. To a certain extent. I mean, there are some shortcomings and some areas where you can see in the discussion specifically around AI that we're hearing some of the same voices again and again and people still tell me that the way to fix the future of artificial intelligence is just to use Asimov's three laws of robotics as though that's the shortcut to every solution we potentially have. I don't think they would think other tech from that period was was contemporary and unsurpassable. Yeah, so it's just a kind of easy shorthand of Asimov got it right, we just do that. and We never have to think about it again now. (laughs) As a science fiction writer you realise obviously that the laws are all about conflict. They have to be, otherwise there's no stories. It's also about constantly asking questions. Yeah. So once you actually reach a position where you say, well here's a science fiction author who solved it, that is almost the exact opposite of the point of writing science fiction. I wrote a time travel comedy for Alan Aitbourne some years ago and within it he suddenly said to me, oh no, no, you can't have that. There was an idea about Mm. the meeting of their own selves. And I said, why? He said, because that isn't possible. And I said, (laughs) time travel isn't possible, Alan. It's just that what happens (laughs) is is that you begin to almost believe that there are certain texts about science fiction Mm. which almost make it into sort of like cardinal law. They're canon, aren't they? Yeah. 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 But all of it's just speculative. You you, You could say God is a turtle. 
You could do the, you one do Terry, Terry Pratchett, Pratchett book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is one of my favourite Terry Pratchett yeah. books because it literally speaks to what happens when people stop worshipping a god. Mm. And he becomes very small and very not powerful because yeah. he has one true believer, brother, and yeah, it's a great story. Yes, it is. Well, yeah. there is an awful lot more we could talk about, so much so mm. that I may simply lock you in here and keep you as my pets, I mean friends, um, <laughs> from now on. But we're going to have to leave it here for now. Thank you so much to my guests, the writer Robert Shearman and Dr Beth Singler from the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion. And thank you also to Big Finish for their permission to play the Doctor Who clips. Plenty more of that at bigfinish.com. I've been Natalie Haynes and Things Unseen is brought to you by CTVC. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk